welcome to this, the second episode of the 10-part series, the IPA's Great Books of Literature podcast. My name is John Roscombe, and I'm the Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. In this series, Andrew Bolt and I talk about 10 of the great books of literature with our compere James Bolt, the host of the Young IPA podcast. This series is part of the IPA's Foundations of Western Civilization program. In our first episode, Andrew and I talked about Bleak House by Charles Dickens. In this second episode, we discuss The Leopard by Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampedusa. Published in 1958, The Leopard is both a classic work of historical fiction, set in the tumultuous times of Italy in the 1860s, and a meditation on life, seen through the eyes of the central character, Don Fabrizio. The third episode in the series, Weathering Heights by Emily Bronte, will be released in a fortnight. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating. I'll now hand over to James Bolt. The Leopard is set in Sicily in the 1860s, at the time of the unification of the Italian states and in the midst of sweeping political and social upheaval. The book centres on a Sicilian nobleman, Don Fabrizio, Prince of Selina, and his family. Don Fabrizio has a nephew, Prince Tancredi, who fights with the nationalist rebels and who represents the spirit of a new age. The marriage of Tancredi to Angelica, the daughter of a rich merchant, reveals how the established nobility must come to rely on the rising middle class. A central theme of the novel is how individuals and societies respond to change, and it contains the famous words of the prince, if we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. The novel progresses from the 1860s to 20 years later, as Prince Fabrizio lies dying and he contemplates his life. He reflects that, while he's been alive for more than 70 years, for only three years has he fully lived. The Leopard concludes another 30 years later, as the three daughters of Fabrizio, who are now themselves elderly, have their most prized possessions, religious relics, investigated by a priest. The priest declares most of the relics to be forgeries, which stands as a powerful metaphor for the attitudes and beliefs of Fabrizio and his family and his class. John, I know you came to start off with some background on the author, so do you want to tell us who Jeff, uh, Giuseppe de Lampedusa was? The background to the author in the book is that this was an Andrew Bolt choice. James, when we talked about the podcast a little while ago, uh, Andrew said, we must do The Leopard, and I said to Andrew, but I've never finished The Leopard, just like Visconti's movie Death in Venice, I've never finished that either, and Andrew said to me, no, you must read it, and we must have it on the list. And a little bit like Bleak House, I'm so glad I did. I can see why it is on the list. It is a rich, evocative, delicious book about death and mortality and about food and about love and about Sicily. It's terrific and delving into the life of Giuseppe Lampedusa a little bit more, as you said, the book was published after he, he died in 1957. The book was published in 58. It had been, it had been rejected by a number of publishers. Um, and he was writing the book as he was dying and he knew he was dying and, and that comes through. Um, the, the book is based on his great-great-grandfather, uh, Prince Julio, uh, who was an Italian and Sicilian noble in the 19th century. Um, Giuseppe knew of him. Uh, Giuseppe himself, born in 1896, had at one stage a boring life but a fascinating life. He never had a job. Uh, he lived off the family's money, which was declining. Um, he fought in the First World War for the Italians. He was captured by uh, the Austrians and escaped. He had at one level a loveless marriage, but at another level uh, a marriage of someone who he was very close to. He had no children. Um, and he wrote The Leopard um, in a number of coffee shops in Sicily while eating pastries. Um, he loved literature. He wrote a thousand-page history of, of English history and literature uh, in the 1950s. He loved talking about literature, but he was also, and you can sense this from the book, um, a solitary lonely man. He talked about uh, that a lot, and all of that is captured in a book that is magnificent. It's a fabulous book. Um, he's writing about the end of the aristocracy, basically. I mean, here comes Garibaldi in 1860. 
in the Risorgimento to uh, invade Sicily, to bring it into the kingdom of uh, Piedmont, or eventually the kingdom of Italy. And uh, the Republicans, well, there are, there are Republicans among them. And here's the prince, the prince uh, who wants to ensure that something remains, that, that the, the prince of Selina wants to ensure that the aristocracy still survives and so they've got to make an accommodation with Garibaldi or the, the people above him. And it's most captured brilliantly by that, or is best captured by his beloved, virtually adopted son, Tancredi Falconeri, who says at one stage, and this is referred to throughout, um, for, for things to stay as they are, everything must change. So they've got to make accommodations in order to survive. That's the theme of the novel. In the end, of course... I'm not sure that everything has survived, uh, but that it's a it's it's a story of how they make accommodations with the rising middle class, and in a sense, the Lampedusa is defending the aristocracy, in part while being totally cynical about what it's achieved. As is uh, Don Fabrizio, the Prince of Selina. He he too, in the end, as he's dying, he recognizes his pro that Garibaldi is probably one. And then in his own life, has been largely useless. Uh, 70 years of boredom, he says, and only three years of actually living. Uh, the final coda is just brilliant. Uh, years after the prince's death, his, uh, his uh, sisters, or uh, his daughters, his surviving daughters, none of them are married. The three of them have not married. They're living together. They've, they've got all these relics, religious relics in a chapel of his, of his former palace that they've turned into, well, a chapel. Um, they've been conned by a nun who just sold them fake relics. A priest comes, this is the reforms, throws them all, all the relics out as trash, but re retains the frames, saying the frames are really lovely. And I think that's really it. He recognises the contents may not be much, but the frames of that aristocracy were really lovely. And this is a, a mourning of what's passing and since a sort of realization that everything will change no matter how much you do change it it's a meditation on decline and while we've made it sound a little bit depressing it's not it's um a story uh reflecting a personal decline a family decline a national decline as andrew said the change uh there's a strong level of anti-clericalism uh that comes through but lampedusa himself as basically an agnostic still acknowledges the role for the church and, and you have some of the most effective scenes where you have the Jesuits saying, well, we can get rid of um, the church as we know it, but who's going to feed the poor? Who's going to provide the um, spirituality upon which we rely? And, of course, one of Lampedusa's arguments is that that spirituality, that feeling of oneness with Sicily is what held Sicily back for so long. When the book was published, it was hugely controversial Lampedusa's friends even though he said none of them uh, are characters in the book uh, for a while shunned his wife uh, because it paints a picture of basically medieval Sicily struggling to come to terms with modernity and it paints the picture of a family exactly as Andrew said uh, who can't change and while you would think well how does a you know, noble family of, of Sicily in the 19th century relate to to anyone today it's not just about noble families, it's about families as a whole, how they change relations within families, um, nephews, nieces, cousins, all of those things. And these were things that Lampedusa saw during his life. So he had um, aunts and, and uncles uh, who themselves had had fascinating relationships. Uh, he had an aunt who um, starved to death after a Messina earthquake. He had an aunt uh, who was married to a man who then tried to, who murdered her and tried to commit suicide. Uh, he failed. He succeeded in murdering the aunt. And then during the trial, another aunt, of Lampedusa's was so distraught that she committed suicide. Um, all of these things about families and relationships, Lampedusa observed just so well. Yeah, it's interesting too, you know, Lampedusa in World War Two, the the palace that they had in Palermo was bombed uh, accidentally <laughs> by the Allies. Uh, later, and we visited the, as a family um, his uh, beloved. 
country palace, uh, Donna Fugata, is, uh, it is in the book, but it's at uh, Santa Margherita de Bellici in, the, in, uh, in, in, in interior uh, Sicily. Uh, that was destroyed by an earthquake. So really, De Lampedusa is writing this knowing his own world is collapsing. And, knowing he, himself is and he is prince. dying. Yes. He is dying, and he writes about the death of the prince. Now, the prince knows that he's had some sons. The one that's most like him that could have been the prince has gone... And left the family for reasons we don't not explored in the book. It's like a hint you can impose on it what you like. He's gone to be a clerk in some factory in in Britain to engage in commerce. All the things that the land producers sustained. His uh, eldest son, he knows, doesn't have the prince-like quality, so he adopts this uh, this nephew of his, uh, a highly attractive character. Uh, Tancredi Falconeri. The Tancredi is interesting. Tancred, you know, the, the Germanic tone, because the prince himself is half German. His mother was German, and makes him a little bit of a stranger to Sicily in one sense. Um, he adopts him this rogue, this guy, this opportunist, this this nobleman with no money. And I think the heart of the book comes, perhaps the the very beating heart of the book, as with the Visconti movie, which is a wonderful movie. Uh, it comes in the scene where here is the prince in his Donna Fugata, the, 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 the place that he loves best, this wild cascading palace in the interior of Sicily. They don't even know where all the rooms are. Well, get lost more than it. 100 <laughs> rooms. Uh, any house with, where you know all the rooms is not a house worth living in, the book says. Um, they, they, have a, they have a dinner. And in the dinner where the family is and Falconeri is there, uh, Falconeri is the man that the prince thinks can survive, can bring the family to survival. He will make the accommodations with the new order. In fact, Falconieri serves with Garibaldi's uh, army, for instance, with the prince's blessing. Uh, so Falconieri is the guy that the prince hopes will be the aristocracy of the future. So they have a dinner, wonderfully described, the beautiful Sicilian pies described, which I've tried to cook Best myself. food scene in world literature. Wonderful. And also, again, in the movie, the same. And into this dinner comes the daughter of the rising new class, the mayor, Calogero's daughter, Angelica, Angelica, and she is sensationally beautiful, sensationally beautiful, and the mayor, as a rising man, uh, has educated her in Florence, and she comes back, and Falconetti falls in love with her, and the prince has to contract a marriage, which galls him, he calls it like swallowing a toad, but he sees it's inevitable, because... Falconetti has no money, but he has the aristocracy. Calogero has the money. He has much money. He knows only the value of money, not of money. He puts sacks of gold on the table. Yes, and he buys Falconetti the future. It's a marriage of commerce and, and aristocracy. And in this relationship, uh, De Lampedus and the prince pin their hopes, not necessarily realised in the end, but it, it is... A fabulous scene where you see this merging of orders and a prince having to contract a deal with Calogero, who becomes actually later a senator in, in the new Italy. It's just absolutely fabulous, you know, where he's shocked that the mayor is, uh, doesn't have English razors and is badly shaved, he's got terrible clothes, terrible He's got buttoned-up shoes, and this was a huge disgrace. Doesn't know <laughs> when to wear the uh, frock coat or when to, you know, be... It's just a sensational thing. The, the mayor offends everything, uh, every order of the prince, but the prince realises the man's value and that this is the future. And he passes it on to a generation who are basically chances. Uh, Tancredi, Angelica, the mayor, um, are almost in Lampedusa's mind and Don Fabrizio's mind, not worthy. Um, but it's interesting hearing Andrew talk about this. Um, the book is full of these wonderful set pieces. It is a exactly. book made to be a movie and you can think of, as you say, uh, cutting the Timbolo, the, the ball, famous ball scene, which we should um, well, talk that's about. That's right. It's uh, just you know, the, the dinner, the ball. The relics. It's, I mean, it's, it's funny. It's not really. It, the, one of the reasons the book was rejected uh, by one of the publishers was, well, it's a, you know too uh, too much like an essay, and um, the book is either a bunch of sermons, which are not uninteresting, 
all these fantastic set pieces with these lovely descriptions, which are just just fantastic. But you mentioned uh, the church, right? Uh, uh, let's go sit through some of the themes. Like, De Lampedusa is looking at the forms of the aristocracy, the, the manners, how they live, the church, all those sorts of things, and sees in them um, a value. Not necessarily the value that they pre- they're supposed to present to the world, but a value nevertheless, even though they're going to disappear perhaps or be subsumed by... He thinks there's always going to be an aristocracy. It's a different kind of and, aristocracy. And, he, and he, you're exactly right. He talks about this. So his Jesuit priest, his companion, goes and visits the brothel. Well, doesn't well, visit well, the, the brothel with the him, fi- but the turns whole, a blind eye to his infidelities. Absolutely correct. But this still sees value thing. in the relationship. Well, the, he does in a bit because he's got a rich patron for for one. But he also loved the prince is a very attractive character. That's the whole thing. Marxists also hated this book because yeah, they believe that. Enough. <laughs> it, well, not just that, but he a they some people called him a fascist for praising Ooh. the aristocracy, and but more to also that in this book, De Lampedusa seems to deny the idea of progress. Uh, and by that I mean like spiritual, cultural progress, uh, uh, but also in part material, but that obviously has been disproved there. Uh, they don't like it. I mean, there's a fabulous part at the end, uh, in the middle, where the new order comes to him, an emissary from the new king, and saying, we want you, prince, to be part of the new order. We want you to be a senator in Rome. Uh, because of your illustrious name, and I think that's also to give people confidence that this is not a complete revolution, which is in part De Lampedusa's thesis that things don't really change. And the prince says, I can't. I just, A, he believes in loyalty, loyalty to the former king, even though he despised him. The king in Naples has been gone now. But also that he doesn't think he is a dealer and wheeler of the new order, and he recommends Don Caligero. But then he says, this new order wants to improve Italy. They come to improve Italy, uh, or Sicily rather. They want us to be part of the kingdom. He says, Sicily is not like that. You You think you can come to improve us, but we think we are gods. And he says, the Sicilians are so proud that their pride overcomes any sense that they need to be improved, although even today Sicily is a slight backwater. And I think that's a fabulous insight into how some countries and cultures and people refuse the reforms that people of reason or people of competing cultures think they should adopt on reason. And Lampedusa says, what are these reforms anyway? And there's some lovely discussions on the northerners coming to Sicily, as Andrew says, and attempting to impose reform, attempting to impose bureaucracy. I'd call it even red tape. And there's a lovely, lovely sentence which captures the attitude of the reformers and the attitude of the old Sicily and the community. And there's a a sentence I'll read out. Now we need young men, bright young men with minds asking how rather than why. And who are good at masking, at blending, I should say, their personal interests with vague public ideals. And for me, Lampedusa talks about why. And so you have Don Fabrizio, the astronomer. So astronomer, astronomy and mathematics is, is one of his interests. So he's looking at the stars, thinking, why are we here? What are we doing? Why? And now all you've got, you've got modernity, you've got the revolution, you've got unification in Italy, and now all we're asking is these narrow, practical, technical questions of how, without thinking about why are we here. Well, you raised the astronomy. I think that's fascinating. I'll talk about that later. But we started with talking about forms and religion. Now, obviously, religion is one of these forms, right? And it is in the book. It's Religion is presented, Catholicism is presented as something... Not in a flash of like stripped, yeah. Almost like stripped of real spiritual meaning. Yes, I mean, yes. believers are very few. Real believers. And it's deep. about money and owning land well, it's and more, process. It's, it's more about more than that. It, the book is actually framed between two, two, two religious scenes, as it were. It opens with, and so does the film, in a wonderful thing. Visconti is just a genius in, in translating this book to film. It opens with the prince on his knees, leading the family in the daily mass. Now, the prince is not actually religious, as you say. <laughs> that, that night he goes with the priest. He forces yes. the priest, who's angry about this, 
to come to Palermo because they live outside Palermo so he can visit, he, he, visit he leaves, his mistress. He leaves the dinner table and says to the family and says to his wife, I'm off to Palermo and everyone knows everyone exactly knows. Where, everyone knows everyone where he's knows. going. So he's there and all the family must be there. He is furious if they're not there. And he leads them in a, in a mass every day. Um, so it's really more for form. And he's also he also maintains... Um, a closed convent, the family, with his donation. He takes great pride. What is, when he counts in his dying and he counts some of the love, the things he did that he liked, really enjoyed in the three years of good stuff <laughs> is his visits to this closed convent because he's the only man by law that can go into that convent as the donor. And he loves that sense of possession. It's not that he goes and worships. He loves the sense of possession and the tradition, the fact that every time they present him with biscuits and all that, he loves that. There's the food again. <laughs> There's the food again, exactly. It was a very sensual book. Yes, uh, yes. Italy's, uh, Sicily is presented as a sensual place. But at the end of the, the other side of it, so it's all form, right? It's about things being in order, a sense of tradition, as, as, as both him and the uh, Jesuit priest that is his kind of mentor or friend or whatever – both say, you know, aristocracy is a little different. It A family is maintained by a collective memory, an aristocracy by a collective memory and forms and traditions. But this empty form in one sense of the church, the story ends when the, he, the prince is long dead, his daughters are there, they have this chapel with all these relics, they take great pride in still praying, so that tradition is continued. But a reforming, again, a, a bishop with sort of German kind of mentality comes, an archbishop comes to Sicily and wants to throw out all this trash because they're fake relics and uh, they're all trash thrown in the bin. They've only got the beautiful frames uh, and that's the end of it. And one of the daughters says, what sort of church do we have now? He's not going to recognise our relics and our belongings and the form has purpose. So you're yeah, right, but, there's a lot the of form, priest, but the, the, also the, the church has purpose. Yeah, well, exactly, but the purpose is only a form rather than a spiritual <laughs> content. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the Archbishop and his, uh, and his religious investigators have found that for decades uh, the prince's daughters have been praying before an image they believe is of the, a beautifully painted picture of the Virgin, uh, of, of the uh, Mother of uh, Christ, uh, with a, a little message of blessing crumpled in her hand, looking ecstatically to the sky, uh, they think this is the Mother of Christ. And they, the, the archbishop and the priest detectives, in fact, a, a painting of a beautiful woman with a message from a lover for an assignation. <laughs> her eyes are wet with desire, <laughs> which is the whole, the whole beautiful thing, that sensuality that drenches the whole thing. Uh, actually, Andrew mentioned the line about... Um, uh, how few happy years um, Don Fabrizio has, and uh, I've, I've found the section. I'm 73 years old, and all in all, I may have lived, really lived, a total of two, three at most. <laughs> but it's interesting when he goes through the list of what those moments are. They include uh, sex with people, with uh, women, hunting, a selling, uh, hunting. Um, a, a half hour when his first son was born, and he yes, thought, yeah. "Hey, listen, this is the Selena dynasty uh, continuing." Uh, the time with Tancredi, uh, who's not a bore. He says, he says of Tancredi, the value is he may irritate you sometimes, but always will fascinate you. And that is not something to be sneezed at because he leads a life of boredom. Or well, life is boring, really. And, and that's Lampedusa's view when he was he writing fact, the book. And life he, adopted, he himself yeah. adopted someone uh, in that sense. So he's, he's exactly right. And this sense of battling... Sicily is presented like that too, this fierce sun coming in, a land that he, he says has been conquered over 2,500 years by the Arabs, uh, by the Normans, by the Romans, by the, by the Greeks, by the Arabs. By the, they've always been a colony for 2,500 years, he says, and we're exhausted. He says, we're exhausted. Don't come to improve us. We think we're gods, but we're exhausted. But as you said, they survived all of those invasions. They survived all of those other cultures and civilizations because they thought they were better than anyone else and more <laughs> noble. And, of course, Lampedusa says, well, you know, if you're so noble, how have you got into this terrible, terrible um, situation? And, again, Lampedusa's coming back to the religion and aristocracy, Lampedusa's point, and as you said, you can see why the left hated this. When you, As bad as the aristocracy is, when you strip away that, strip away church, strip away the relations with the pe peasants, 
what do you have? You have these officials from the north who just come and try and impose uh, this bloodless reform that actually makes things more complicated. They say, well, we're unified, but we're more disunited than ever before. And the question is, all of this is swept away. Garibaldi swept it away. What replaces it? And for me, it's interesting. You're reading the book and, and you think Lampedusa is going to say, well, okay, I'll tell you what's replaced it. Fascism, Mussolini. But he doesn't actually do that. He does something which is, I think, more significant. He basically lets it hang and said, nothing replaces it. And and you're expecting them to say, well, if you sweep away all of these things, you're going to get fascism. Well, through, through this book is always... The wariness of people demanding reform. He yes. describes them and look what ha- yes. as yes. ants. You know, describes them at one stage as like an ant pile, and you know, ants busily doing this and this and this, and you can vaguely hear the chants. And and and, and he sees that. So here comes the Risorgimento promising a reform. Um, uh, the church's stranglehold on people will be broken. Uh, political rights, all that kind of stuff. And Garibaldi lands with his famous thousand red shirts on Sicily and sweeps away the troops of the King of Naples, you know, the, the remains of the Bourbon Empire, uh, the, the Spaniards that for a ch- while were in charge of uh, Sicily as well. Uh, it all seems to be very popular, and of course this is the genesis of modern Italy. But uh, de Lampedusa remains sceptical of it, even writing a hundred years later. And in the book he, uh, he says, he, the princess goes out shooting with his gamekeeper, and the gamekeeper is furious about what's happened, even though the gamekeeper is supposed to be one of the p- beneficiaries. Be, yes. You know? And he says, uh, here they are, they've come to pr- promise reform, and in, in the place of Donna Fogata, where they're hunting around, uh, the prince throwing in his hand, at least publicly, with the new order in order to survive. He tells everyone, no, I think you should vote yes. They have a referendum. Yes to unification with the rest of Italy. Yes. And the mayor, Calagero, the new rising order, proudly announces and fireworks that the town has voted unanimously, unanimously, yes to unification with Italy. And the gamekeeper and the prince conclude that this is the moment, or in fact, the Lampedusa concludes, this is the moment that they broke faith with in the idea of progress again, because they know of dozens of people who voted no. The vote was rigged. They could have just accepted the vote, let people have their say, prove that people could have their say. They rigged it and broke faith. And in a sense, you know, I was thinking a little bit about our own um, uh, referendum, the, or, um, the plebiscite. public vote, plebiscite. The bullying that went with it. The apt- and the deplatforming of people, I'm not saying the vote was rigged, but the bullying and the, the demand that people, that got up the backs of a lot of people who then became against the reform. And here, here we go again, you know, the shiny-eyed crowd, De Lampedusa warns, all things change, they all have their own failings, nothing necessarily is going to be better than what replaced it. He's, he's exhausted. And, and there's a wonderful line where they talk about what sort of people um, are the reformers, what sort of people are the modernists, and there's a lovely sentence where there's a description about some of the characters uh, of the new world. He's not a traitor. He follows the time. That's all (laughs) in his politics and in his private life. So we've had a thousand years of history, aristocracy, culture, tradition, replaced by people who just go with the wind. And and again, this is the point about Tancredi. Would Tancredi, if Garibaldi hadn't been new and hadn't been modern, uh, would he have followed Garibaldi? Was he Again, is he just a chancer or does he actually believe it? Well, Tancredi ends up quite successful. He becomes an ambassador under the new regime. Uh, the money from his marriage uh, does up his villa. Um, everything is uh, tickety-boo. And as for the uh, woman, the... The the, the, uh, the Angelica that is married, the daughter of Don Calagero, she becomes a massive string puller in politics, uh, quite wealthy, uh, connected with... The, she is the new aristocracy. And she's the new aristocracy and Fabrizio's daughters are just left behind worshipping their relics. Uh, exactly right, exactly right. It's interesting, but it, it, in a sense, it's not like 
Some people have read it like uh, De Lampedusa says the aristocracy was fantastic. He is a disillusioned. He knows all the weaknesses as well. It's just that he doesn't think, you know, you're going to get one aristocracy, you're going to get another you're aristocracy. Gonna get the old ar- you'll get the new ar- aristocracy, you'll get modernity and the new aristocracy. You are going to get uh, these different times, which in fact are not that dissimilar from, from the old times. And the power has been replaced of the church and the aristocracy with... Uh, commerce and other things. Well, well, that's exactly right. And it's interesting, too, where he says um, it, it's not completely like uh, the old... Again, it's not completely like the old order was terrific and the new one is shocking. He acknowledges... It just, it's more the, the uselessnesses of it. But he does say, you know, like, so here we get the Don Caligero, right? He starts off, he's bought a new suit that he barely fits in. He doesn't know when to wear it when visiting the prince. At one stage, the prince invites him over and he thinks, well, look, we're in the country. I'm not going to wear evening dress. That's not what, you know, he knows the form. The prince knows the form and he doesn't want to embarrass country guests. So he doesn't wear evening dress to a sort of reception uh, in the country, whereas sort of on holidays. But Don Collegero doesn't know these rules. So he appears in evening dress, which then, of course, mortifies the prince because it's not, you know, these little things. And it's funny that uh, Don Caligero, right, who knows the value of everything, uh, knows the price of everything, the value of nothing, essentially, um, and becomes very rich, fleecing the aristocracy that is completely sheep-like. But Don Caligero too learns something, and 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 in this, uh, De Lampedusa presents it almost like the seeds of their destruction, where they too become manners and polite, and where he learns manners, but he learns that manners can make a profit. You know, the form of manners, which De Lampedusa believes in, you know, manners actually is a way of me- making, putting meaning in life and making it more agreeable. He learns that manners, he, this is what he says, uh, he learns, he realised, Don Calagero, this man of money, realized, Don Calagero, by the way, is reputed in this book to have shot his father-in-law. He married a beauty himself, but someone so Who he now has gross, to hide away. Yes. She has to hide away. She never appears in society. And her father was known as a Pepe Shit. Oh, should I have said <laughs> that? In it's Italian, Pepe Shit. Uh, and uh, he's found dead with 12 bullets in him, presumably because Don Caligero doesn't want to be associated with this guy. But anyway, he now learns from the prince that you can make more meaning out of life inter- from your internal resources rather than ripping money off people. And he goes, he realised, this is Don Caligero, how agreeable can be a well-bred man, for at heart he's only someone who eliminates the unpleasant aspects of so much of the human uh, condition and exercises a kind of profitable altruism. Um, and he, uh, Don Caligero, uh, it's just so beautiful, some of these observations, the detail of observation is great. Uh, gradually, Don Caligero came to understand that a meal in common need not necessarily be all munching and grease stains, that a conversation may well bear no resemblance to a dogfight, that to give, give precedence to a woman is a sign of strength and not, as he believed, of weakness. And sometimes more can be obtained by saying, I haven't explained myself well, than I can't understand a word, and that the adoption of such tactics can result in a greatly increased Yield from meals, arguments, women, and questioners. The f- I think that's really interesting. And and what wonderful words. And uh, James, I don't speak or read Italian, but it reveals the simplicity and the beauty of Lampedusa's writing that something written in Italian can work out so beautifully yes. in, in English. And, of course, Lampedusa spoke five or six um, languages, Italian, of course, English, French, German, uh, Russian, and he always said, um, you've got to read something in the original. So he was reading the Russian authors in the original, um, Spanish authors in the original. He read all of um, Shakespeare, uh, Dickens and and, and uh, Charlotte Bronte were his favourite authors. Um, but there's something magical that you can write those sentences in, in Italian and they work so beautifully. Well, the reason in for English. that, I think, is the not necessarily the language, but the observation the obs- the power of op- the yes the telling details very evocative it, it, look the telling details he has and, and we want to it's I, shot through with little i want to go to a couple of telling details i want we've mentioned food and um uh not that i'm that much into food and literature but um 
uh, you could argue this has got some of the great descriptions of food. So we've, we've mentioned the famous uh, Timbola and the, and the macaroni um, at the ball, the, the famous scene um, where uh, Don Fabrizio uh, um, dances with Angelica. There's this fantastic description of, of the food. There's huge blonde bubbers, Mont Blanc snowy with whipped cream, cakes speckled with white almonds and green pistachio nuts, hillocks of chocolate-covered pastry, brown and rich as the topsoil of the Catenian Plain, from which, in fact, though many a twist and turn they had come, pink ices, champagne ices, coffee ices, all parfaits which fell apart with a squelch as the knife cleft them. Melody in major crystal lies cherries. This is still all the same sentence, I'll keep going. Acid notes of yellow pineapple and those cakes called triumphs of gluttony filled with green pistachio <laughs> paste and shameless virgin cakes shaped like breasts. That's one whole sentence. The nipples you, and, of Venus. Yeah, and, you, mm. and, and, and you're reading that. And you can see it on on the page, but it's also the closely observed, uh, uh, close observation of human behaviour and human wisdom. This is a summing up of his own. He was a noticing boy. We because he that. was he was always the person at the party who sat in the corner. No one wanted to talk to him. He would write letters to his wives and relatives saying, "Well, look, I've got to go to this party, and I know I'm really boring, and no one wants to." Talk to me. So and that the made him a, a bit the same, and that as made well. him a very keen observer. Well, uh, I'll give you one example. For instance, it doesn't really relate to the theme of the book or themes plural of the book. He says, for instance, he's talking about a couple of brothers, and this is this is where Father Peroni, his his father confessor, goes back to his own village to sort out a problem in his own family, which is at the very other end of the social scale, where um, a, a girl. Uh, I think his niece has been made pregnant by some some farm labor or, so, or some mule you know muleteer mule herder yes mule, um, she's been made pregnant and that's in part revenge by his father against what he thinks is the slights from that family so he gets his son to impregnate this girl and Father Peroni's got to sort it out and the way he sorts it out is exactly <laughs> the way that Don Fabrizio sorted out Falconieri's. Uh, lack of money and the need to survive as an aristocracy, he arranges for the two to marry in exchange for a little almond grove. I mean, it's just the same sort of thing, uh, which I think is fascinating. But but the, the point is, the close observation of human nature, he says this, later the brothers, so the man who got his son to impregnate the daughter of uh, his brother, later the brothers had quarrelled. One of these family quarrels we all know with deeply entangled roots, impossible to cure, because neither side speaks out clearly, each having much to hide. And how often do you see that? A family quarrel where no one actually dares to say what's really bugging them. You mean at Christmas lunches? Uh, that sort of thing too, and that you can't, you can't solve them. Uh, where it says of, the lo of lovers, you know, because he's got a sexual jealousy of, Don, of, of, of his beloved Tancredi with Angelica, this sensationally beautiful, a wonderful couple. Uh, physically to look at and he's a bit sexually jealous because he's a bit of a player himself uh, but they both love him at least Tancredi certainly does in an ironic way which the prince can tolerate and they invite him to their table at one stage after he's danced with, the, uh, with, with Angelica and he refuses and there comes this phrase lovers want to be alone or at least with strangers never with older people or worst of all with relatives <laughs> And you sort of think, I'm not sure if that's 100% true, but it feels like it's true. There's all of these sexual overtones which reflected Lampedusa's relationship with his wife and there's lots of speculation about um, their marital relations, but all of that comes through. So at one level you've got all this um, sex which isn't really talked about and then you have Lampedusa being very cynical about love. So while he wants to celebrate uh, Tancredi and Angelica together... Um, he says of Angelica, but although she did not love him, she was then in, in love, love with him, mm. a very different thing. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, the, 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 there is a lot of love in this book. This is also a book about love. Oh, do, you re do you reckon? Yes, I do. Where, do where's the... That? Well, at one stage... I think he's very cynical it, about love. 
Are there any loving relationships? He is cynical about love. It's interesting that the uh, his own wife, the uh, De Lampedusa's wife, was a Freudian analyst. And <laughs> yeah. apparently the only one in Sicily at the time, yeah. uh, the, uh, uh, when I say at the time, at the times that she deigned to live with him. I mean, they really respected each other. But she was yeah, from, from, a dis- from, from, where was she? From Bal- some Baltic state. Latvia. Latvia. Um, I think it was Latvia. Yeah, but obviously, you know, there is a, a knowledge of how human beings work in here. And it goes to love, and you're right, in some senses uh, it is cynical, where he says, you know, um, that uh, uh, love, he says at one stage, of course love, flames for a year, ashes for 30. <laughs> what a, what a, there's a lot, of, and again, given that was written in Italian, there's a lot of very good lines in English in this book. <laughs> well, there, there is, and, and he says to also of Angelica, in the phrase, in the place that you uh, refer to, that uh, here she is, like, she meets Tancredi, and she knows that she's from a lower class thing. She's been to Florence, though, so she's got ambitions. And she is ambitious. She wants to succeed. And initially, uh, not being as well bred, so to speak, um, what she wants is the position um, and the access to a world, an aristocracy that De Lampedusa says doesn't quite offer what she thinks it does, right? Looks more attractive. Uh, so that's what she wants. And she wants. Falconeer is a very handsome man, very dashing. She wants him in her bed, basically. He's quite frank about that. And when they initially meet, that's what that's she wants. And uh, but she says, in love, she wasn't really because she had said she he he said she had too much pride and ambition to annihilate herself in the way that you need to to be truly in love. And in the end. While they're passionately in love without being love, you know, really loving, it, it comes in part from the restraint, again, the manners, that in, intense feeling that they want to have sex. They're going through this rambling house. They're cavorting. They're lying in old beds together without any, actually doing anything, stealing kisses. The sexual tension is intense, but they can never do it. And he says in that, in that tension... They think they're in love because it's so much. But when they actually marry, the marriage turns out not to be a success. And in fact, Tancredi's actually not that great and, in bed. And arguably, they've never loved each other. They've well, ne- they get uh, an affection for uh, each other. A, a, a form. That's the whole a thing. A form. Well, it's the same with the prince's marriage. Well, and Fabrizio talks about never having seen his wife's navel. And, and, and so and Lamp produces, yeah. says that's his excuse to go and, and see prostitutes. And every time, <laughs> no, but but night he comes, he uh, goes to a prostitute, he yeah. comes back and have, has sex with yeah. her as well. But And he says every time that they have sex, uh, near the end, near the consummation, she crosses herself and <laughs> yells out, uh, so I'm, uh, holy I'm, Christ. So I'm, 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 reading, so I'm reading The Leopard. Thinking, gee, there's a lot, a lot of sex in this, and exactly as you say, all this sexual tension. And then, of course, it's a year twelve book, so you've, you may imagine these fifteen and sixteen year old boys and girls writing essays on this. But but it's, it's also, life. you know, again, form and and memory, as he says, you know, a, 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 an aristocracy is defined by its shared memories, its collective memories, the weight of history, that sort of thing. Destroy that, you have no, you know, no aristocracy in a sense. Um, he, 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 there's also, a, 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 he says, memories can't actually be relied upon. And we've got this great love affair between Falconeri, uh, so-called love affair, Falconeri and this beautiful daughter of the rising class, Angelica. But Falconeri is also loved by Don Fabrizio's own daughter, Concetta. She, adore, she really lo- does love him. And he likes her a lot. He likes what she but represents. But not that way. Well, it's a bit unclear. Probably not that way. Probably not that way. And he falls because Angelica is so beautiful. And again, in the Andrew. film, you, you know, Claudia Cardinale mm. captures that beautifully. She just, I mean, oh my, oh my God, she melts the screen. But her life then, she devotes to this remorse, this anger that she's been betrayed for 50 years. She nurses this sense of rejection. It's wrecked her entire life. It's wrecked her entire and, life. And of course, as we find out, there was someone very eligible uh, who fought with Tancredi, who met Conchetta, and Conchetta said no. And again, what's nice about The Leopard is many authors would have spent chapters talking about Conchetta's jealousy for Angelica. And in fact, there's only three or four or five sentences throughout the book that capture that jealousy, but it's so effective. Again, it sort of just pervades 
the the book. He doesn't labour it. There's just phrases and sentences and exactly as you say, descriptions of of them. So he talks about uh, Conchetta looking at Angelica's skin. You know, oh, I don't I like know. her skin. I don't like her teeth. How human is that? <laughs> but but it's interesting too. You know, um, this idea of memory that she. Nurses a resentment at an anecdote. A fifty-year-old at, that, at that dinner, that dinner yeah. where Angelica just and you can see Falconer falling for it. Every everything's overturned at that point, uh, including uh, her hopes of loving Tancredi himself, uh, herself. Um, Tancredi tells a joke or tells a story about being a soldier in the Risorgimento, where they had to break into a convent in order to take firing positions on the on the other on the opposing side, and the nuns were all screaming. And he says something because the sexual tension mm. in the air is so high that he says, "And we yelled at the uh, nuns who were screaming in fear. Well, you're not that pretty. We'll come for you later if you were." Uh, and Angelica, being coarse, being of Don Caligero's uh, family, uh, laughs uh, when he says, uh, when someone says, oh, uh, when he says, we could have come, if you had been there, we would have come back for you, Angelica. And obviously, this is so coarse. Um, but Conchetta is shocked by that, shocked. And I mean, she realizes the world is over. 50 years later, <laughs> when Tancredi is dead... Talk about getting over it. <laughs> yeah, I know. When Tancredi is dead, uh, one of his friends comes over, uh, comes to visit, and he says, Tancredi just made that story up. It wasn't true and regretted it all his life. And she's nursed this resentment about this all her For life. And suddenly years. all this resentment crumbles and her life is over too, in a sense. It's just... I mean, it's and, incredible. And again, I wasn't sure how... It was going to work in the book, sort of. These are almost flashbacks, and he goes um, forward and back a few times, and he mentions uh, in in the book the destruction of the palace by the American bomb. So he's writing about the 1860s, and then he talks about what happens in 1943, and in someone less skillful, it wouldn't have worked. No, but it sort of does work, doesn't? So I think you, it does. You jump 50 years in one page, but it completely makes sense. Yeah. Um, I feel like now we've given away we've so many spoilers. Questions. But one, other, one last <laughs> thing. You mentioned astronomy. Now, in a sense, this book might be seen as totally... Dan you know, but it's read by some as his praise of an ar aristocratic order where everything was stable, and now here come these Republicans and, and cretins and people who don't have any manners and don't shave with e English razors and don't know where to wear frock coats and, or evening dress and the whole thing's gone to pot. Um, but the prince himself, in a marvellously described death scene, I mean, it's, one, it's probably the best death scene I've ever seen, you know, on par in opera, in opera terms with uh, the death of Boris Goodenough. But... He, he sends his life draining out. There's a rustle of sand in his, his you know, it's just draining out. Um, but he sort of realises that everything's changed, you know, nothing was great. Um, but the astronomy. Um, I just want to go back to the astronomy bit, right? The prince, that's his big, big certainty, his big passion. He gets a medal for it at the Sorbonne and all that kind of stuff. And it, and. He seems to love the stars because at one part of the book he says that they seem to change. If they change, it's at his order. He is ordering it. His mathematical equations are guiding whatever they do. And, and unlike the Earth, there is a stability up there. Did you notice that? That in this world of change, everything's changing around him. At least the stars are constant or they act to his will. But it's something that he's got no control over and the thing that he thinks is really important this stability is that of the stars and the sky which is completely disconnected from the tumult, the tumult. Behind, behind him which is which is a bit otherworldly which again relates to the idea um that he's actually not that worried about what's happening around him and he's not going to do anything about it. He's more worried about the stars. Except then, nearing the end of the book, at the great ball scene, he meets a colonel. And, and talking about, you know, the more things, for everything that stays they are, everything must change. This colonel represents the new Republican regime. 
And his big claim to fame in in this ball is that here's the man who shot Garibaldi. Now, Garibaldi <laughs> was the agent yeah. of the change in the first place. Garibaldi is a revolutionary and then decided to go and march on the Papal States to get the Pope's, uh, you know, to get Rome into the new kingdom. And then kingdom. Garibaldi sells out too. <laughs> well, no, because the kingdom that he has helped institute doesn't want this war with mm. the church, sends the colonel at the famous battle and the colonel shoots Garibaldi in the foot. The revolution is over and the old order in the new guys is there. So this this colonel represents things changing and but not changing. Uh, so he's the hero. He's shot Garibaldi and ended that particular revolution. So, But he says to the prince, Prince, we know that people think the stars are fixed, but they're not. They move. And at this news, the prince feels a chill in his soul because even the stars do not remain stable. They change. He knows this. And I find that of such... A wonderful sort of metaphor that everything really changes. And the colonel represents it, and even the stars won't save the prince. And you can't stop it. And you can't stop it. Okay, cool. We'll go to some questions coming from our listeners. So hopefully, uh, we have a, we've had to cut a few questions, but hopefully from the conversation, a lot of those questions that people have written in will have been answered. I'll start with this one. So The Leopard was written about 100 years after the time during which the early parts of the book are set. Uh, does that, do you reckon this offers De Lampedusa a, a, a nice perspective to write about the times? Uh, do you reckon the distance helps or hinders the novel? I think it helps, but... It's a novel about history and it's a historical novel, but its power is not because it's about Italy and about revolutions. It's about the things uh, that are in our power to change. It's about lives. It's about um, what it is like to, to see our life um, in, in the context of the leopard sort of slipping away without without meaning so i think this book could be set in the french revolution or the roman empire or anything in between it, it, it it's a little bit timeless uh, yeah i think it's not in a really set in 1860 it's yeah. like it's it's timeless and it can be paris in the 1960s yes that is writing about it 100 years almost 100 years later um that enables him to flick forward and and say listen this didn't work out as people thought, you know, that uh, the archbishop who then cleans up, uh, uh, you know, the old habits of worshipping saints that aren't, uh, was later thought of as a fool, he says uh, later. And, and I think that enables him to draw lessons when he inserts himself and tells you uh, how that story actually ended years later and how his own ancestral home was bombed in World War II, you know. So you actually see this process of change and decay and all that. And while he's describing the life of an ancestor, uh, he is, in fact, describing his own life too. And and I don't see that really. It makes it more timeless in a sense, I think, the way he flits in and out. Okay, cool. Uh, the other question we've got here. So if we want things to say as they are, everything will have to change. Now, this is a quote you guys have been discussing in reference to the book a lot through the show, but I just want to ask you guys, what does this quote mean to you and uh, to the modern conservative today? Well, I think, uh, John, what it should say is there is a difference. We should be reminded there is a difference between conservatism and reactionism, re being a reactionary. To conserve, you do have to change. You do have to make allowances. You do have to accept the good while fighting the bad. And sometimes you've got to realise, however much you fight, you may well lose and you have to accommodate. And you are always going to have to adjust. But I'm not going to read too much into that sentence because one of the points of the leopard is a bit Orwellian, which is... While in the middle of the revolution they're looking forward to the new liberal order, they're looking forward to elements of the new franchise and democracy, although it's not certainly democracy as we know it today. Um, but uh, as Dylan Medusa says, look, one order was just replaced by a, another order. The, the church and the aristocracy was just replaced by a government of the north. And I kept on thinking about this and thinking that this is Orwell and Animal Farm, you know, the pigs rise in revolution against the humans and they become human. So I think that is a little bit overstated and people read 
too much into it if they favour change and revolution. And for every sentence like that, I'll come back and say, well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I think um, the elements of, of conservatism or any political ideology are about what are our values and principles, not what are our structures. So the leopard talks about the, the structures of the aristocracy and the church and, and, and the clerics, but you know, the values are still the same, which is either the uh, church and the uh, aristocracy oppress the workers and oppress the peasants, or the south is oppressed by the north. It goes to principles and values, not what are the particular systems of government at any one time. Well, he says things change, but things stay the same in one sense. It's a do, pessimist yeah. about change. He just says, you know... Nothing ever I, really gets better. No, he says, he says, well, there were things about the aristocracy that were quite good, and uh, I think that he, he probably tries a little bit too hard on that. Yeah. But anyway, he does say that. Um, so it's a bit more pessimistic that you change, people get excited by it, but uh, you know, it may not necessarily be for the better. In fact, at one stage, it's a powerful thing where the prince has been uh, tempted to go and, and join the new order, be a senator in Rome. He refuses, as we discussed before. And he talks about uh, change and how he's pessimistic about it, uh, about whether it's for the better. But he actually does also say it may be for the worse. Uh, worse, at least for him. And he, the beautiful paragraph where he says... Um, he explains to the astonished representative from the new government, we were the leopards. Let me say that again. We were the leopards, the lions. Those who will take our place will be little jackals, hyenas. And the whole lot of us, leopards, jackals and sheep, we'll all go on thinking ourselves the salt of the earth. So he is pessimistic, although I mean, we've been to, I've been to Sicily since and I probably prefer to live in Sicily now than what it was then, so change can be for the good. But here's a note of caution, isn't he? And, and, and this idea that change must always be for the good and saying that you can sound like a stuck-in-the-mud reactionary, but it is a little bit of a, a cautionary tale. And again, as Lampedusa talks about... Um, uh, change means your spot in the society and community is changed, everything is dislocated um, and there are reasons why things were they, the way they were. Yeah, well, and, and I think he has made clear, th to him, there was a time when people probably contemplated, where people like Lampedusa were very much involved with the thing, with, or the prince in, in this case, we're talking about manners and found a meaning in life, uh, how to bring civilization into you know, a brutal discourse. Whereas the new order, he says, you know, with uh, Calogero, the, uh, the, his now <laughs> brother-in-law, as it were, uh, so to speak, uh, they know the price of everything, the value of nothing. And it's a more a commercial, transactionary kind of life that comes through. And I think a lot of people may well look around and see that now. I mean, the aristocracy, of course, suited the aristocracy quite fine. Yeah, it, it's yeah. A, and, and, and while, I'm, while I was saying that, I was realising, well, it's a lot easier to say that when you're part of the elite and a noble and you've never had a job in your life. <laughs> but then he's, he also presents some of the servants and all that who are devoted to the old order too because they have a position, uh, a sense of worth and all that. Well, so he describes... Um, again, you know, it's. I'd like to see a book written from the other perspective, <laughs> but but there it is. And, Modernity and, gives you running water. But I, yeah. but I do think now we are living in a very highly transactional kind of society where the values and the eternal are not valued as they once were. And maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. Lampedusa says. No, isn't necessarily there's good. A, there's and a, to his mind, it probably is a little bit worse. There's a strict. Um, Division and there's that metaphor, exactly as Andrew was saying, of tradition and culture versus money. You know that that that's uh, very stark. And again, uh, as Lampedusa uh, is inclined to say, money wins out. And rationalism you know. too. So, one of the very well, the final scene of the book is where the reforming years after the leopard's death, uh, there are his daughters, three daughters living in their converted chapel in his old house. 
with all these paintings and icons that they've collected from a uh, from a cheat of a former nun for who money. sold them any rubbish for money for money. But here comes the reforming archbishop or a, a cardinal. Of, uh, he comes in and he says, "All these things are rubbish. You've got to get rid of them." And he's right; they are rubbish. They are fake. Yeah, but they had value to the system. But they had value. All right, cool. That might be a good place to end the show. So thank you guys so much for listening and uh, come back in two weeks when we'll be discussing Wuthering Heights. So thank you to John and Andrew and we'll see you guys soon. Bye.